The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. That's what it is right here on a Thursday evening around nine o'clock. It is indeed The Enviro Show and I'm Nancy Richards in Cape Town together with Albert Clarsen. And needless to say, we have a very woman-heavy show tonight. First up, the second in our Cosmo Girl series for August, cosmologist Michelle Knight takes, uh, gives us a, a little bit of a simplified sketch of what is the SKA. In our Conservation Icon series, Indian environmental activist and author of a book called Making Peace with the Earth, we'll be talking to Vandana Shiva, quite an honour, that one. And after that, 50-50 presenter Ntokozo Mbuli talks about her green awakening and also about her hands-on campaign. Lovely story. And finally, in our green goodie feature, a land art biennale in Plattenberg Bay, site-specific it's called, and we'll be talking to CEO Stradum of Fandamerva, and he also has a little bit of a woman's slant on that one as well. So that's what we've got lined up. Hope you're going to stay right with us. And just quickly, a little bit of eco-info. I wonder what your take was on that laboratory-designed hamburger grown in vitro from cattle stem cells mixed with breadcrumbs, egg powder, beetroot juice, saffron, all those things. Certainly an option for meat-free Mondays. And part of a project run by Google co-founder Sergey Brin, who invested, as you probably heard, around about $380,000 into the research. Well, it's thought that cells taken from just one cow could produce 175 million burgers, which certainly goes some way to solving the food security issue without all the harmful methane gas that goes with the cattle farming of cattle. Well, if you've got thoughts on that one, do let us know. You can find us on our Facebook page. That's The Enviro Show on SAFM. Or you can pop me an email. I'm at richardsn at safm.co.za. Stay tuned. The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Now we've established what the show is. Uh, first up in our series for August, Cosmo Girl, bright-eyed Cosmo, bright-eyed, bright brain too. Cosmologist Michelle Knights explains in very simple terms that we can all understand exactly what is the SKA. Well, the SKA stands for the Square Kilometre Array, and it's when it's built, it's going to be the biggest scientific instrument ever built. So the SKA is what we call a radio telescope. Now, when most people think of a telescope, they think of you know, this, this tube that you look through, through and you see the stars and you see galaxies and whatever. Now that's an optical telescope, but you actually get many different kinds of telescopes. And this SKA is what we call a radio telescope. And now what it's going to look like is actually a lot like your DSTV satellite dish or the dishes that you have at radio stations, which are used for telecommunications, except this dish is a receiver. So it receives radio waves from the universe, just like an optical telescope receives light from the universe. And uh, the amazing thing about the SKA is um, a while ago, radio astronomers realized that instead of building one really, really big dish, because of course, the bigger they are, the more light they capture, so the better you see. But it's really hard to build a dish that's, you know, a kilometer in diameter. <laughs> so what they realized you can do is you can break it up into lots of little dishes. And uh, this has been done many times. It's called interferometry and uh, very successfully, but never on the scale that the SKA is going to be. So the SKA is going to have about 2,000, probably more, more, probably more like 3,000 of these dishes, these sat looking like satellite dishes spread out across, across the African continent with the core in South Africa. So um, this is really the premium telescope, the, the, the ultimate radio telescope. We're going to see the universe in ways we've never seen it before when it's built. Um, 
And the interesting thing I should, I should just briefly mention a little bit of the history of the SKA. So this is a global project. There's, there's a number of countries involved, number of governments and institutes involved in the project. And um, it was proposed many years ago, and then they decided that they needed to find a site where to put this enormous instrument. And uh, South African, some very intrepid South African astronomers, back then there were only a handful of South African radio astronomers, decided to put forward a proposal for South Africa to host the SKA. And we eventually were shortlisted with Australia. And now this bid took many years, and, uh, and it's, it's been a sort of a huge part of my career because this bid was going on sort of from first year to, to now. And eventually, but only last year, it was decided that uh, the majority of the SKA is going to be in Africa, and about 30% of it is going to be in Australia. So we're sharing it with Australia, which is great. So uh, yeah, the, the thousands of these dishes spread out across Africa, the core in South Africa, which is, which is really wonderful, and the rest in eight partner countries. So it's really a huge scientific uh, endeavor that's happening on our continent. It certainly is, and it's a very wonderful thing. And when you say radio telescope, the thought that goes through my mind, and certainly probably many others as well, is that radio sort of feels like audio. And I'm thinking, how does something that's radio translate into something that we can see? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I should maybe take a step back and talk about a very scary long word that I'm about to say called the electromagnetic spectrum, which is uh, what scientists talk about all the time. So... When we see with our eyes, we're actually seeing only a fraction of light that is available in the universe. And now I'm, I'm going to say words that people have heard all the time, words like infrared, microwave, ultraviolet, x-ray, gamma ray, radio. These are all actually just light, just at different frequencies, right? So radio waves are a much lower frequency than the optical light that we see. And this, makes, this is one of the things that makes them useful for communications. Now you talk about here, when you hear, we hear the word radio, you think audio, but of course, there's electronics that happen when, uh, so you have some, you have your satellite dish on outside on the, whatever, on the roof, receiving radio waves, and there are electronics that translate it into audio. So in the same sort of way, we can receive radio waves from the universe and use electronics and, com and computers and software to translate those waves into images, raw data that we work with, graphs and things like that. And, and that you can do for any part of the electromagnetic spectrum. There's also a gamma ray telescope, which is in Namibia, called HESS. There are X-ray telescopes out in space, uh, looking at X-rays from the universe. There are infrared telescopes. These all work on the same principle. They're just light buckets, collecting light of a specific frequency range, using electronics to convert them into pictures that we can then understand as scientists. And see, as you say, what we've never seen before. So we look out there into the, into the night sky and, you know, those of us are just sort of looking blindly with our regular eyes. But this is going to show us way beyond anything we've seen before. And it, it seems to me already we know a huge amount. What more are we going to discover? Oh, it's, it's really exciting. The SK is, is completely unprecedented in, in what it's trying to do. So there, there are a lot of important questions that we don't understand. It's true, we do know a lot about the universe already. We've been studying it for many years. But there are a lot of questions. One of the most interesting ones is, was Einstein right? Now, everyone's heard of Einstein and heard of his theory of general relativity. And uh, just to briefly mention it, it's just a theory about what gravity actually is. Now, it's a theory that stood up to every single test we've thrown at it. But there are still 
harder tests that we can do and we expect to see there might you know there might be certain areas like for example around black holes where Einstein's theory isn't successful anymore and we start needing something new. The SKA for the first time is going to be able to perform those kind of tests by monitoring these kind of extreme objects. Then there's lots of other things like this mysterious thing called dark energy, which is, called, is causing the universe to expand faster and faster and faster, kind of like an anti-gravity. We have no idea what it is. We have no idea how it's behaving. And the SKA for the first time could try and help answer those questions. There's lots of other things about galaxy evolution. Um, there's, uh, are there planets where life could exist? How do planets like that evolve? So the SKA is really a complete level up, as it were, in terms of where we are in radio astronomy in general. Oh, aside from satisfying curiosity, not least yours, because this is where you came in on the whole thing, how will it help us to know this? That's a, that's a really profound question, and it's something that I, you know, I've grappled with mm. for my whole career. You know, I, in a sense, something like astronomy and cosmology is a complete indulgence. You know, we, we're curious about the universe, we want to learn, but what's the point? It's never going to cure cancer, it's never going to drive a bus or anything like that. So what is the use of it for society? And I think there's a, there's a number of different things. The one thing to think about is that there are spin-offs. There are incredible technological spin-offs. The camera that exists in every single person's cell phone would not exist without astronomy. Those cameras, those CCD technology was developed for astronomy. Barcodes that you find in every single item in the shop developed by NASA. So in these kind of what we call blue sky science, that's science without direct application for, for mankind, they, they have a lot of incredible spin-offs and it's impossible to predict what those might be. But for me, that's not the reason why I do it. I don't do it to hope to come with, up with spin-offs. I do it because I think that one of the things that makes us human is our curiosity. And if we're not continually driving to understand, the, to ask the impossible questions, to understand the really difficult things about the universe, to understand our place in the universe, we'll stagnate. We'll stop developing as a society, as a civilization. We need to be, still be curious. We need to remain as human as possible. And I think that's why these kind of sciences are so important. Well, as they say, it makes you think, doesn't it? That this Cosmo girl, Michelle Knights, and she'll be with us again next week, talking this time about the planets. And don't forget that uh, the Enviro Show is podcast, if you'd like to hear anything one more time, www.safm.co.za. Scroll down to podcasts and go to more podcasts and you'll find the Enviro Show. Well, as you know, we've been running another occasional series here on the Enviro Show. It's called Conservation Icons, and so far, all of them have been men. Well, tonight, in honour of Women's Day tomorrow, we're going to hear from Indian environmental activist. She's an eco-feminist. She's also author of a book called Making Peace with the Earth, Beyond Resource, Land and Food Wars. She is Vandana Shiva. And I spoke to her earlier and asked her how she came to be an environmentalist. Well, of course, it's a long story because it's happened uh, over a lifetime. My own uh, idea of my life was as a little, naive, innocent physicist. That's what I wanted to be all my life. But I had grown up in the mountains, in the Himalaya, and in the forest, because my father was a forest conservator. So that was also a very deep part of my life. But I hadn't thought of it as a place for work, just a place for life and living. And it was when I saw streams disappear and forests disappear, and that's when this amazing movement started in the 
70s, four decades ago, called Chipko, the Hug the Tree Movement, where women came out and said, you can't cut these trees. They are the protectors. They are what uh, give us soil and water, and uh, the landslides are being caused because of your uh, looking at the trees as timber mines, uh, the forest as timber mines. So I became a volunteer for Chipko. I learned a lot from the women. Every holiday, I would be doing my PhD, but every holiday I would come as a volunteer. And I would write reports for them because they knew exactly what was going wrong. But to then turn it into English and to turn it into science, that was the little bit of support I could give. And because of my exposure to the issue of monocultures versus natural forests, when disasters took place in 84, Two disasters in particular, the Bhopal disaster, where a pesticide plant leaked in um, the city of Bhopal, Union Carbides plant, killed 3,000 people then, 30,000 people since then, hundreds of thousands crippled. And that same year, we had the worst terrorism of that time. I mean, it was the beginning of the modern-day terrorism uh, and extremism uh, in Punjab, in which 30,000 people lost their lives also. And Punjab is known as the land of the Green Revolution. So I asked myself, I was consulting for the United Nations at that point, and I, on conflicts over resources, so I just asked myself, you know, why is there so much violence linked to this kind of farming? So I did research for the UN, wrote a book called The Violence of the Green Revolution, which then threw me into agriculture circuits, even though that was not really my background. And that's where I came to know about the old chemical industry wanting to become the new biotech industry, uh, the Monsantos, the GMOs, the patents, the TRIPS, the WTO, all of it, at a meeting at which I was invited to attend in 1987. So that's the day I decided I would, A, save seeds, any seed I could find, I would just save it, because for me, biodiversity is so precious, life is precious, and the idea of all seeds being genetically manipulated and patented was so abhorrent. And uh, that's what I've been doing since then through Navdania, the movement I created. Um, Monsanto keeps increasing our work. Uh, some places, they retreat like they have in Europe. Uh, our Supreme Court has just received a technical expert committee saying there's no, there must be a moratorium on GMOs because the safety issues uh, need to be resolved with much more science and much more research. Um, so life carries on with most of it spent in doing things that are beautiful, uh, but part of it spent in resisting the destructive. And for me, a major preoccupation right now is the fact that the, my home region, my birthplace, has uh, had a terrible climate disaster. And there have been uh, heavy rains. The dam building has led to higher uh, flooding. Entire villages where we have our organic members have been washed away. Uh, my team is trying to reach with relief, uh, but the roads have uh, collapsed again. So it'll take them four days before they get to the villages uh, where 90% of the homes were washed away. So in a way, um, in you know, 40 years ago, we stopped the logging. 40 years later, we've got to remind the governments and the corporations that there is an ecological imperative mm. because they think there's only one imperative, greed. And we have to somehow replace the greed imperative 
with the ecological imperative. The ecological imperative, as you described, the, the Himalayas that you're describing that suffer the climatic disaster, which seems that yeah. it's come, a, it's, it's been a long time coming. It's not something that happened suddenly. It's as a result of what has been done all those years ago. Absolutely. Um, you know, the trigger, of course, was the fact that there was very intense rain right at the beginning of the monsoon, that a glacial lake burst, and that's a climate phenomenon. And it happened at the peak of the pilgrimage period, so many, many, many people lost their lives. The government estimate is 5,000. On the ground estimates are 20,000. And what has added up to this, what has contributed to it, was this, is this insane idea that you can uh, dam up every inch of free-flowing rivers, of sacred rivers, the Ganga, the Yamuna, the Mandakini, the Alakananda. Um, and second, that's, you know, these pilgrimages which... 20, 30 years ago used to be on foot. Uh, it, it was really about a sacred journey. Uh, today it's about building four-lane highways on these fragile mountains, uh, uh, trying to set up hotels, resorts where there should be not, no building at all. And the combination of this totally non-sustainable development against the knowledge, against the science of the sensitivity of these youngest mountains of the world, amazing if they are stable, but tragic when the soil and the trees and the forests that protect them are absolutely raped so that this crazy idea of a particular kind of development that is only destruction can make way for money-making at the cost of lives. What lessons then have been learned as a result of these disasters? Is it time to be changing ways and do you see that that can happen? Well, it's absolutely necessary that we change our ways. There will, of course, be a group of people, you know, there'll be groups of politicians, there'll be groups of businesses and corporations who have had it easy, you know, uh, making money, uh, doing all this. I mean, in fact, I'm trying to prepare a case right now because wherever in the villages we talk, the people are saying it's the hydroelectric project that has caused this disaster and they should compensate for the loss of our homes and our fields and our lives. Uh, the government is getting ready to compensate the corporations because their dams have also been damaged. So there will be people who will want to continue in the old ways. But in my view, it's a very, very small group. The majority of people just want to have a life, a sustainable, peaceful life, so that they can look towards tomorrow without fear. They can look towards tomorrow and look towards the next generation and say, yes, they'll have food, they'll have water, they'll have livelihoods. And there, in my view, there are two key shifts that are needed at this time. First is this, you know, this measure of growth, the GDP was a very clever measure. It was created for the war. It was created so that money could move out of society to buy arms, uh, to finance the war. Uh, and so it really measures how you convert life into money. And it measures how you can cut a tree and make it timber. That is growth. But you plant a tree and protect the forest and protect the mountains. There is no growth measurement for that process, though it is the real economy, and it is the real growth. So the first thing that has to change is the idea of growth. Um, I work very closely with the government of Bhutan, and uh, Bhutan has um, said, 
years ago that we are not going to adopt GDP, we are going to adopt GNH, gross national happiness, the well-being of our people. After all, wealth is well-being. Wealth is not money. It's a total misinterpretation and wrong meaning given to a term. Um, the second thing we have to change is the idea of development that goes with this idea of growth. Mm-hmm. It is not development to blast the mountains. That's destruction. And, you know, my philosophy, my thinking, uh, working with women who are the ones who suffer most but also are in the front line to change, I, I've realized over these 40, 50 years of my activism that capitalist patriarchy, as I've called it, the convergence of the power of capital and the power of uh, patriarchy, it has developed this distorted thinking that destruction is creation and creation is passivity. So women don't work, nature doesn't create, and I think till we solve the psychological damage, we won't be able to change track. And it is really, in my view, a mental illness. It's a mental illness to count destruction as development. It's a mental illness to say a tree growing is not doing anything, a butterfly or a bee pollinating is not doing anything, Uh, women working don't work. Um, And this is ignoring and then destroying such a large part of the real economy of life. Yes, I see how you call it a mental illness. What is the cure for this mental illness? Is it, is it your organization, Novania? Tell us what you're doing to change the situation. Well, you know, because it is a mental illness, I think the first step of sanity is to recognize creativity where it is. To recognize that the soil becoming more fertile when you add compost to it is a creative act, and therefore farming is a creative act. It is not an obsolete occupation that can be destroyed for the land grab that's taking place in Africa or India. Um, I think recognizing women's work and the work in subsistence of small farmers is such an important part of this shift. So in Navdania, what we basically do is we save seeds because the Monsantos of the world want to declare seed as their creation and their invention and they want to patent it when all they do is steal. They They can't create life. They can steal our seeds, and I have fought cases on biopiracy, fought a case against Monsanto, where they pirated an Indian wheat variety with low gluten to be able to market it worldwide to those who have gluten allergies. Um, So these cases of biopiracy, which um, have also hit Africa, I remember there was a case of a San tribe uh, which used to eat a plant in the desert to suppress hunger, and now Pfizer has a patent on it as an anti-obesity drug. So... Creativity in the right place ensures that piracy is recognized for what it is and not a creative act. The second thing we do through the saving of seeds is create resilience. So when these climate disasters happen, it is the drought-tolerant or the flood-tolerant or the soil-tolerant seeds that we have saved that are able to rejuvenate lives of people. And the soil, which is now rich in carbon with organic farming, is able to deal much better with too much water or too little water. But because you can't just do this in one aspect, you know, life is interconnected. And I have talked in my new book, Making Peace with the Earth, how just like South Africa has had apartheid based on separation, um, on, on the basis of race, we are suffering an equal, 
ecological apartheid with the illusion that we are separate from the earth. Now, recognizing that we are part of the earth and we are part of web of life also means we can't act in fragmented ways. So what Navalny does is work from the seed to the table. Saving the seed, growing food organically, making sure it reaches people. You might have heard of the tragic death of 23 children eating uh, a meal, a midday meal that was laced with pesticides. Mm. It's so unnecessary because there is no place for pesticide in the food system. And I have, in fact, contacted um, colleagues in Bihar and said, let us start what we do in other parts of India, creating gardens of hope. First, because gardening, I think, is one of the most healing activities. Second, because safe food growing in the schoolyard is not just a source of nutrition, it is a source of learning. I think we are alienating our children so much from the earth and thinking that food is a manufacture which necessarily needs poisons. And as that mindset deepens, people get more and more accustomed to eating GMO corn, which I know is a big issue in South Africa. There is no place for chemicals in food. There's no place for genetically engineered crops. That is why we've written a report called The GMO Emperor Has No Clothes. On no positive fact, do GMOs contribute? They don't give higher yields, they don't reduce chemical use, and they have actually made the lives of farmers more difficult, particularly in conditions of poverty, as in India, where patented seed royalty collection, which it goes hand in hand with GMOs, means seeds get so costly, farmers fall into a debt trap, and more than 28,000 Indian farmers no, 280,000, sorry, 280,000 Indian farmers have committed suicide in the last 15 years as these seed monopolies have evolved. And we go to these areas and both create a suicide-free farming as well as gardens of hopes with the widows. How do you manage to keep, um, to keep yourself above it? Right at the beginning, you said most of the time you spend thing, doing things that are beautiful. Much of it is sort of combative. I'm just thinking, you know, the path that you've chosen is a difficult one. You're up against these giant seed corporations, these companies. Um, It's very difficult for somebody like yourself uh, to do this sort of thing alone. How big is your following? Well, I wouldn't call it a following. I would call it a network. Yes. And uh, it's, it's at different levels, so it's different numbers for different things. When I led the marches against agriculture and food being brought in the free trade system called the WTO, the GATT. You know, we'd mobilized more than half a million farmers in India. Um, We've trained more than 700,000 to give up chemicals, to save their seeds, to do an ecological agriculture. Uh, The global campaign on seed freedom, which I think is vital for the entire world, uh, definitely has reached more than a million people, and more and more people are now realizing, A, how big a player Monsanto has become in our lives without our choosing it. Mm. And that's why the marches against Monsanto are multiplying. And secondly, how important the little seed is to our lives and our food system. So it really depends on, uh, you know, what scale we are talking about. Yeah. But our network of farmers is about 700,000 in India. 
Just not inconsiderable. You know, you also mentioned there that most people want to lead a sustainable, peaceful life. And, and I think that's true across the world, whether or not people realise that sustainability is part of it. But India is one of the world's most populous countries. In fact, it is the world's most populous country. The average person, do you think they have an idea about sustainability? Do you think that they are sufficiently aware of the dangers, the climatic dangers, the, the threat to the environment largely? Well, you know, I can definitely tell you this. Forty years ago, there was much more awareness. Forty years ago, it was much easier for people to see what is the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. I think these 20 years of what I would call a greed economy has created so much confusion. And it has numbed two very, very large groups of people. The extremely poor who are living in destitution. And even though they get poorer because food is 10 times costlier, you've been removed from your home, so you're living on the streets. On every indicator that makes for life, things are going down. But our government has just announced that poverty has been reduced by 20% because um, anyone above 27 rupees, which is 50 cents, uh, is not poor anymore. They just change the income level without looking at the expenditure needed to stay afloat and stay alive. Um, people are eating one meal a day. A quarter of India isn't eating. Uh, and yet, on their financial figures of 27 rupees, uh, suddenly poverty has disappeared for 20% people. Uh, the second confusion comes from all these indicators, you know, like the growth indicator. Um, it comes from making you feel you have no option. And then for the other class that's locked into rewards of an amazing kind, you know, we didn't have the levels of inequality that we have today, and I'm sure it's the same for South Africa. And this inequality means there is a group of people getting very heavily rewarded out of destroying the basis of sustenance for the majority. And... There is a new collusion between those in politics and those in business. In fact, there is no line dividing the two. There's a total revolving door uh, between our parliament. You know, 30% parliamentarians are now billionaires. They get into parliament to pass laws to favor themselves, and then they carry on doing their industrial work. Um, and I'm sure the story is absolutely the same everywhere. So the consciousness actually is much lower today in the ordinary person than it was 20, 30 years ago. But there is a new consciousness growing among young people. Mm. And they are short-circuiting their understanding. And I think that's growing for two reasons. One, they have a much bigger access to information around the world. But two, they can also see this bubble called growth is bursting on them. You know, how many young people thought forever they would earn 100,000 rupees in a software company? And now they're getting the pink slips. So they're realizing this economy won't last. Indeed. And as you say, it's a, it's a global issue. Your book, Making Peace with the Earth, who do you hope will read it? And what difference do you hope it will make? Well, I've realized one thing, even though I, I write still, uh, and I started as a very reluctant writer. I used to get letters saying, I've just read this book of yours. Now I get so many mails saying, 
I've just seen this YouTube of yours. And in a way, kind of, we are digitalizing ourselves into out-of-book reading. So I have no idea. I, I think students will surely read it because students must read. <laughs> That's part of what you do in university. Um, and I think some concerned people will definitely read it. I mean, people do read the books too. But I notice far more people watch YouTube videos. Do you hope that your government will read it? Um, well, you know, at one level, the government has read it in the simple thing that these are issues, uh, you know, I, I'm not an academic anymore. I don't take time off to write a book for scholarship. I write a book because that's what I'm living. And everything I live through, I'm writing columns in our newspapers. I am doing debates on our TV. So everything that's in the book, uh, individually, separately, is there. I mean, I just debated the chief minister of Uttarakhand um, about his still protecting the dams and that model of development. And when will he learn? So even though they might want to avoid listening, the one thing I try and do is make sure they get to listen the truth. Well, there you have it. That was Vandana Shiva, and uh, she's the author of a book called Making Peace with the Earth Beyond Resource, Land and Food Wars, and it's available on Amazon. And just FYI, I've actually put a, a link up to the one of the YouTubes of Vandana talking on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to check that out. It's uh, Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, finally, our third green woman for tonight, uh, rather closer to home, is our very own homegrown 50-50 presenter. She's Ndokozo Mbuli. And she's recently launched her hands-on campaign. Well, I also spoke to her earlier, and I asked her how she first became environmental. I'm a TV producer, and I work, I've been working behind the scenes before I joined 5050 for quite some time. After I had worked for Endemol UK um, as a production manager, I started working on 5050 more on the television production side and not so much presenting for them until they needed somebody to do their book reviews. And I started getting into presenting that and then uh, got into the field. But the more time I spent with the 50-50 people and the more time I spent in the field and the more I got to know about the environment and the more books I had to read to review, the more my interest for conservation and the environment increased. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to know. And I just the passion just grew and grew from there. Yes, it's interesting because I was going to say that the thing about television, it's not known for its sort of green tendencies with the exception of your program and, you know, a number of other programs. It's, yeah. you know, television is quite a sort of carbon heavy medium altogether, I suppose, you know, with all yeah. that sort of. So it's quite it's quite interesting that you fell into this and it sounds like you were then, as it were, self-educated on it. Not quite self-educated because one of the, the joys of uh, 5050 is that a lot of the people that work on the television show are actually experts because mm. um, I'm currently also the series producer of 5050 Now. And most of the team is made up of people who are not necessarily television professionals, but are professionals in various conservation, science and environment related fields. You know, I learned a lot from those people, even outside of the shoot, the conversations that were had, cups of coffees at dinners, even when I give my environmental talks in schools, I make use of all the people that, the team of people that I work with that are experts in all areas of the environment. And also the experts that we make use of as a production, like Dr. Anthony Turton on water-related issues, I've often called him for advice or, you know, to help me with 
some of the things that I want to understand about the about water and our water crisis and passing that information on, especially to young people and especially to young people that come from um, socioeconomic states that need a lot of growth. That's where my particular passion lies. Yeah, I think one of the professionals that you came across, I think, influenced you greatly was Jane Goodall. And Jane Goodall as well. Jane Goodall is my hero because it was during one of her visits to South Africa and I had to interview her and I was very nervous because I had never interviewed somebody of such a caliber before. So I made sure I read up a lot about her and I watched a lot of films that were about her and about the work that she does. And even before I met her, she, you know, started inspiring me. And when I spoke to her, some of the things that she said and the authenticity um, that came with that was really, it made me think that, you know, that's the kind of person that I want to become. I want to make a change, not so much for the recognition, but to be able to influence, you know, bigger changes and see that the work of my hands and, you know, the work me putting the things that I'm passionate about and the things that I think about into practice and influencing other people to do the same and pay it forward must be such a rewarding experience. And with Jane Goodall to see all the work that she has done before meeting this one person who is just such a humble and authentic and real person who is not about what people think of her or about getting the recognition. Mm -hmm. She really has a deep-rooted passion for the environment. That was really special. That was really special for me. Yeah, really humbling to meet somebody like that and to exchange with them. That's, in fact, we're hoping to talk to uh, Jane Goodall. I'm hoping that she's going to be one of our conservation icons here on the programme in the not-too-distant future. But um, looking at you as an icon and certainly as a role model, I think what you've started is uh, a campaign called Allow Your Hands. Tell us about it. You know, this campaign is actually... it's still in its early days because there's bigger things to come. But I play the piano. I started learning to play the piano at, uh, in 2011. And I remember when I went for my first lesson with my music teacher, I just thought that I would listen to a lot of music and, and I'd think, oh, there's no way I'd be able to play this. Because he, he asked me, you know, what are your favorite pieces? You know, and I... And I, I love classical music, so I named quite a number of classical pieces that were my favorites. And he said, you know, eventually you're going to learn to play these. And I thought, no, never. One of the pieces was Moonlight Sonata. And I remember when I did eventually play the piece for him, he said to me, do you remember that this was one of the pieces that you mentioned when you came for the very first lesson and you said you'd never be able to play it? And I said, you know, I'm actually quite amazed at what my hands can do. That caused me to think a little bit more about people tend to underestimate the power of their hands or any other resources that they may have at their disposal because they think they might not have enough to make the big changes that the world requires, you know. And so the message in that is that just allow, let your hands or whatever resources you have, allow them to make the changes that can be changed, you know. Live live up to your full potential. But it was quite a sweet way of looking at it and it it was quite fascinating the way it came to me in like a piano lesson. <laughs> yes, yes, it was a, an aha moment. Yeah, and it was it, actually the response that we've had from viewers, from the promos, because we've got promos on air where it's 
they start with me playing the piano and then they go into visuals of all these different hands that have helped save a whale or a rhino or a plant. And a lot of viewers have come back to us and they've said, you know, it's opened their eyes and their minds. We've got teachers in schools that say that they want me to come and give talks about this concept of allowing your hands to live up to their full potential because it was just like 30-second promos that had one sentence in them, which was, I'm amazed at what my hands can do. It started with me playing the piano. It went into visuals of all these different people around the country that are using their hands to do great things for conservation. And in that 30 seconds, we've said so much and we've appealed to so many people. Quite fascinating and it's really, really great. What a wonderful story and what a wonderful thing to pass on. So very simple. And those children that you were talking about earlier were in areas where, as you say, they need to grow, they need to develop. What do you suggest that they do with their hands? I recently went to a discussion on the development of our youth. And one of the things that came up in that discussion was that we make a lot of assumptions about what um, South Africa's youth need to do to better themselves. And some of the most obvious answers are entrepreneurship. And a lot of the time we don't take into account the number of hurdles that they have to get over, South Africa's youth have to get over, to even get to a point where they, they can be entrepreneurs or start yeah. even thinking about entrepreneurs. So when you go to disadvantaged communities especially, and you teach children to plant a tree, that'll be a, f- a fruit tree. Or you, 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 know, you teach children how, to, uh, how a vegetable garden, how to sustain a vegetable garden that will feed a family or a community or, you know, whatever. If this family is planting cabbages and the next family is planting butternut and they do food share system. Or if they, some ideas have come up where use waste to generate power that they can use in their homes um, in areas where there's no power. Mm. You know? And in that way, it's an environmental solution, but it's a people solution too. And I love those kinds of things where it's, you're taking care of the environment, but you're taking care of people too. Because a question that I'm often asked is, if I don't know where my next meal is coming from, or if I don't have a pair of shoes to walk all those kilometers to school, why should I worry about the rhino being poached. And I'm saying that the rhino being poached is not the only environmental issue. You can look at something that will take care of the environmental issue in your immediate environment, but will also take care of you. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh. Wonderful messages, message, many messages there. You know, I just want to come back to you and playing the piano and the Moonlight Sonata and all the other wonderful pieces that I'm sure you can play now. Somebody once told me, and I'm sure you've put it to the test, that plants really respond very well to music. So if you put a plant on top of your piano, it's going to flourish. That and is the absolute truth. I can mm. tell you that is the absolute truth. I, for many years, have never been able to keep a plant alive. And the 50-50 team have always judged me for that because I would have like plants in my offices and they would die and I don't know why they die. So now I keep my plants in my piano room at home and I haven't killed one since. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure you've given them much pleasure. Yes, (laughs) and I've also given my dog much pleasure. (laughs) Don't you love it? She's probably surrounded by Rick Trifford with all that beautiful piano playing. Lovely. That's Ntokoso Mbuli, 50-50 presenter, talking there about making a difference with your hands. Nice one, eh? Listening to The Enviro Show. Stay with us. The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards.
Well, finally, here on the Enviro Show tonight. And don't forget, uh, we are podcasts, so if you want to check it out, just go to the uh, SAFM website, which is www.safm.co.za and go on down to podcasts if there's anything that you want to catch one more time. Well, finally, in our green goodie feature, and don't forget, this is where you come in if you've got a green product or a service or a good idea that's really environmentally friendly and sensitive, just let us know. Enviro Show on SAFM is our Facebook page, or um, you can also contact me on richardsn at safm.co.za, richardsn at safm.co.za. Well, finally, having said all of the above, tonight, site-specific Plettenberg Bay. It's our green goodie feature for tonight. It's an international land art biennale. And we have on the line CEO, very important man, Stradum of Fandomerva, who is an artist, a land artist himself. Hi, Stradum. Good evening. Wonderful to talk to you. Yes, Thank nice you. nice to have you with us. And uh, sorry to have kept you up so late. I'm sure you're looking forward to the dawn and and uh, you know whatever the, the the tide may bring you tomorrow morning. Um, I think you are the man responsible, if I'm right, for founding site specific a couple of years ago, back in 2011. Why? That's right. Yes, yes. Um, I must say I'm not the only one. I've, uh, we're a group of uh, a little group of three people that came together with the idea that we want to promote artwork that that's um, being done in the landscape. And and I think the term land art is very well known overseas. And you get lots of sculpture parks where artists are invited to come and make artworks that doesn't last for long, that could last for a month or even for a day or even for a year, and it's being rotated and artists are being invited back time and again to these sculptural parks, or, or one can put it also as art museums, but of artworks that's made of, of natural material. And we thought, well, well, why don't we try and do something similar in South Africa? So, um, And I've been fortunate enough to, to be on many of these um, overseas uh, um, sculptural parks and places. And a very good friend of mine, Annie Sneiman, came to me one day and she said, well, let's try and do something similar in South Africa. And I said, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm, I'm more on the artist side and I like enjoy making the artworks. And she said, well, she's, she will take on responsibility of organizing everything. And we got in a third member Heather Craig, and she's one of those amazing people that can stand in front um, of somebody uh, from a hotel and said, we want 20 rooms for free for a week. And they would say, yes, any time, when do you want it? <laughs> and so the three of us got together and we started to organize site-specific. And, and as you mentioned, this will be the second one happening in Plittenberg Bay from the 10th to the 17th of August. Hmm, I think everybody's already started working on their artworks, but I'm you know, you say that this is all about art that doesn't last. Is this the art of the future then? I mean, are we done with art galleries and museums of paintings and sculptures that are sort of thousands of years old, hundreds of years old? Is this the way, is this the way forward? No, I, no, I don't think so. Um, I think it's just a different kind of art mm. form that one can enjoy and, and look at. Uh, I think... Um, you know that that will always be the idea of permanency and there will always be the issue of of people that collecting art for the sake of making money and so on but i think times times have changed and and i think that um to make art in a landscape if you work in a landscape you became aware of the cycles of nature and you became aware that nothing is permanent and everything happens with time and as things progress and we came to the idea well why not work in the landscape and ma and make work that evolves around that whole process of nothing is permanent and i think um you know when you make work like that it's also very important it's more about the message that you leave behind in people's minds or the idea or the concept rather than 
to have to take something back home with you that you want to put on your wall. And there's, um, you know, I think about the, a wonderful Japanese kind of living style where they say you, you match richer if you collect thoughts and ideas in your mind than having lots of uh, world's belongings that you have to carry with you all around. And, and I think... Um, for many of, of land artists like myself and, and many people that are coming to plate this, this coming week and, and land artists around the world, the more you work in the landscape, you more became aware, obviously, yes. of, of the global issues that's happening uh, with the earth at the moment. And you try to incorporate that in the work and try to show to people if they change the way they live, they would also make a change to the environment mm. and how we work around that sounds very beautiful it sounds sort of ephemeral not exactly what you call investment art but but now yeah. having said that it is nonetheless being captured because i've just been looking at your website where there are some exquisite yeah. pictures of yeah. of natural artworks which you can just know are going to be either be blown away or washed away or yeah. here today gone tomorrow but nonetheless they have been captured digitally and and there they are forever which, yes, which is yes. a lovely combination but i just want to ask you um straight i know that this year no coincidence that you're actually up and running on sun saturday i think is when you start um you've got a far more uh, feminine lineup of land artists that's right, yes, yes. I, I think we're very fortunate in the art world that it's not so much dominated by male artists. And um, but and I've, I've been fortunate enough to work with, with, with many uh, land artists, women land artists in the past, and, and one that always struck me as maybe one of the most best and well-known and well-traveled land artists in the world is Cornelia Conrad. Um, she's an artist from Germany. And so we're very fortunate to, to be able to invite her to come to Plate this year. It will be the first time that she visits the Africa continent. And I think uh, what a wonderful opportunity for her to, to come to South Africa and to see a wonderful place like Plettenberg Bay. But besides her, we also have about five, six other women artists that forms part of our main list of invited artists of, of about 12 artists. And then we also got a, a program which we call Sides Artists. So mm. that's all the people that are really interested to be part of what's happening this week. Um, as organizers, we were just not able to, to financially support and help them. But we say, why don't you come along and see what we're doing? And you could take part in the lectures that we do in the evenings, the workshops, the photography workshops, the calligraphy okay. workshops. Australia, I'm going to give do. out your website in just a minute. But what I yes. really want to know is what are they making? I mean, there's also another young woman um, who's very local. She's from uh, PE. So she's just come down the coast a little bit. Lungiswa Gunta, I think her That's name is. That's right. So yes, give me an idea. Give me an idea of what, uh, is it Cornelia from Germany? That's right, yes. Give us an idea of what she's making and what Longiswa is making. It'll be really interesting to know what two women from different sides of the world are producing. That's right. Cornelia is working on very large scales works. She would, um, some of the works that, that I've um, seen that she's done, uh, which, which um, is like she, cut, she would cut her house in half and she would uh, just use the top part of the house and put it in a landscape. So it would look as if the house would have sinken into the landscape. Mm. Or she would have 
use big trees and and then she would cut certain parts of the trees and let it float into the air so it looks like the trees become airborne or or old uh, houses she would take some of these stones and she would start to lift the stones with little wires that she put in it so it's so something that's very heavy and, and and very big would become very light in the way they would float in the landscape so so she works on a very large scale and i'm really interested to come and see what she's doing here because my brief to Cornelia, uh, when we start talking about a visit to South Africa, was you have to work with the material that you found on the beach in Plettenberg Bay, and and we can't support you with any financial uh, finances for buying any material. So you have to work what you find on the beach. And she she said she's up for the challenge, and we're really excited to see what what she's coming up. And Lungiswe that's coming. Um, um, I, I have to admit I don't know her work all that well, and I asked David Jones, who's here of the university in Port Elizabeth to, to send us one of the brightest students that he thought that has been uh, at his faculty over the past years and he said Lungi is the best to come and and I'm, I'm really excited to see and but I think the wonderful thing about artists that works in the landscape I always put it this way you know you can give 10 stones to one artist and ask him to put it in a line and you would give the same 10 stones to another artist to put in a line and the two lines would look totally different and I think that's what really interesting is to see Cornelia coming from Germany how would she interpret the South African landscape and Lungi who's a, a, a local artist from around the area how she would work with the landscape and obviously many things come in like your cultural background yeah. the way you live the politics of the country and would that in any way influence Cornelia coming from Germany or would she think and work in a European kind of way or would she suddenly adapt to what she learned in two three days what's happening in Africa wow <laughs> it's quite it's quite uh, interesting to see the psychology of it all very yeah. very briefly we're nearly out of time um, straight but I know that you've got a new installation on what is now the Eden to Addo land art route so uh, this week aside there's going to be a land art route what are you doing on that? That's right. No, uh, that's really exciting, very exciting. Um, I think it's a, it's a two-week uh, long hike that people can do, the Eden to Addo Corridor Initiative, the Land Art Route, and the the people that started and the organizers of this, this Land Art Walking Route have, have came up with the brilliant idea to have sculptures, I think, every second day as people would walk along this route. And these artworks had to do to have to do with something about the elephants. And because this is, uh, in the old days, probably the way that elephants would migrate from one place to the other. So I'm the lucky artist to be asked this year to to make the second sculpture um, in this whole art route. And the title of my work is Calling the Hurt. So it's a tree uh, sculpture that's very tree look-alike. At the end of the branches is big trumpets. And so the idea is that you can walk up to the sculpture, to, to the base of the tree, and you can blow on the trumpets and it would make this wonderful sound that echo in the valley with the idea that you're calling the elephants back to come and walk this old roots again. Oh, my word. Wouldn't that just be a surprise if one of them came out of the <laughs> out of the forest and said, yep, here I am. <laughs> yes, right. Straight and lovely. We, Thank we you. We were busy installing today, and, yeah. and we were blowing it and, and hoping that something like that 
would happen and wouldn't that be absolutely amazing? Oh, magic, bit of magic. In fact, I believe the Plettenberg Bay Mayor actually said this event is magic and it certainly yeah. sounds like it. Going to give out the website of anybody, but if you're near the Plettenberg Bay area, it's on between the 10th and the 17th of August, so do get yourself down there. But have a look on the site for more info. It's www.sitespecific.org.za. Straight in front of Merva, thank you very much and enjoy it. Have a wonderful time. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for the Enviro Show uh, tonight. Don't forget there'll be a whole lot more next Thursday. But don't forget, if you're a bookista, to join me on Sunday for SFM Literature. That's between 1 and 4. And amongst other people, we're going to be talking to Wally Sirotti, also getting a whole host of women's stories. So thanks very much, young Albert, to Albert Clarsen there. And uh, I'm Nancy Richards. And up next, it's time for lots of music with Mr Stephen Kirker, who's standing by. Hi, Stefanovic.